folks, it is that time for us to get into some history. Folks, this session, class, episode, whatever, we're going to be focusing on the industrial eve, as I call it. And that's pretty much like the world. What did the world look like around 1492? Just picking out a random year in my mind. Uh, what was the context of the world, right? The map, who were the players, where were they currently at? What was their status? How were they playing the game? And then we're going to start to look at a trend and notice something that like Europe starts to play the game a little bit differently. Things change for them. And in order for you to understand the modern world, it would benefit you to look at like, okay, well, what happened in Europe and why did Europe end up for centuries dominating the game? And by dominating the game, we talked about before, like the board game, right? What are the two goals? That's a classic moment as a teacher where I'm like, okay, like, what did we talk about yesterday? And then, like, students just stare at me. I'm like, oh, my gosh. The two goals to currently function and then say with me to continue to function. And then I talked about, well, like, there's a there's the kumbaya. Everyone just wants to get along. I want to, like, I want my society to function. I want the United States to do well, but, like, I also want Mexico to do well. I'm, I'm rooting for them. What is winning? Yeah? Some might say winning is everyone wins. Others might say, like, winning is dominating. Like, I want to beat Mexico. I, shade, no shade, whatever. Like, Donald Trump, unnecessary evil, if you will, is one who, like, winning to him is dominating. Like, I'm going to beat you. So if there is, let's say, like trade and negotiation going on, winning for one could be like, I'm going to get the best deal. The other is like, hey, let's find a way that both of us are going to benefit from this. Yeah. If this if this is like perking your ears and you've never heard this, go to the board game episode. I'd like to also have a disclaimer here. So the theme of this unit this concept, this lens, is we're looking at the world, and in this case, history, with the industrial, industrialization lens. So here's a disclaimer. There's way too much history. There are way too many stories, and not like too many in the sense of like, it's too much, but like there's just so many stories, especially of people who suffer, um, and this episode the other episodes coming up at least for the history ones we're not going to be focusing on we can't focus on everything that happened in the world and i'm going to like give some examples but like this is big picture with a specific lens that we're looking at we're looking at how did industrialization move forward 
We're going to be looking at the effects of industrialization later, and that's like sweatshops and what happened in Africa and in other colonized areas. But like for this episode, that's not necessarily the case. Like for instance, um, we're not in this episode going to be looking at like the Africans being traded into slavery. And that's like into Europe, into the Middle East. Like, wait, what? Within Africa. And then obviously to the Americas. Like, we're not going to be focusing on that. We're not going to be looking at um, Native Americans or American Indians or Amer Indians. I've seen different. <laughs> I don't know what the proper one is because I feel like it changes. So I'm just going to say them all and then hope that I don't offend anyone. We're not going to focus on like how many died from disease or conflict with the um, incoming white man and how like they lost their territory like we're, we're not focusing on it. I'm saying this but like I'm talking about it but like that's not the focus we're not going to focus or talk about a whole bunch in this episode of like the working class that were oppressed due to capitalism um even though like before that they the peasants were oppressed in a different way um and we're not going to be looking at like the indian people oppressed by the india east trading company the reason why i'm saying that is i as a white guy and it, i think it's good but like as a white guy i'll like talk about history and then be like well people are like well you're definitely not talking about everyone else's perspectives like yeah that's fair and I hear that, and I think it's good that, like, that thought even enters into my mind. So, like, when I'm doing industrialization, I don't want to, you know, it's like the classic when you, like, what were U.S. history classes before? It was, like, a bunch of white dudes who did stuff in the United States and, like, occasionally saying, like, and this is what it was like for women and for black people. You know, but like if we're looking at big picture, especially if we're looking at like what moved things forward in the U.S., a lot of it was, at least earlier on, white males, right? But while that was happening, people were having different experiences. It's like the mosaic of history, right? It's like a big picture thing with a bunch of little stories. The same thing is true for world history, only more so and so many different experiences. So I don't want to like talk about like, this is what the world was like and like push forward. And then people, which I don't have enough listeners, for, I guess, for people to care. Um, but I don't like, I'll go through this and people like, oh, but you forgot. Like, all right, chill. Like, that's not the focus. That's for another episode or another podcast or class. Fair. We're going to be focusing on what furthers industrialization and sparks the industrial revolution. Cool. Okay, so around 1492, just picked a random year, approaching the 1500s, the 16th century. What was the world like? It may benefit you to pull up a map of the world. Geography like spatial thinking is key in understanding history. It, it's part of like the, I think why the board game thing makes sense because you're saying, who are we dealing with? But in order to understand who you're dealing with, you need to know like, well, where are they at? 
because location influences moves. Location influences things coming to you and then what you have to do in order to work around your location. So being landlocked is a major, that's a huge influencer on who those people are then. Maybe not culturally, a little bit culturally, but in regards to industrialization and like economic aspect, location's key. So we need to like envision the world and I'm going to start in East Asia. So let's just, I'm going to try to describe the world to you if you don't have a map and you like don't know what the world looks like. If you got the map, perhaps like maybe it'll help to start with the United States. You got the U.S. and the Americas. You got North and South America with the Central Americas in between. You have the Atlantic Ocean. Upon crossing the Atlantic Ocean, if you stay on the Northern Hemisphere, you're going to hit Europe. England, there's Western Europe. So that's like France, Germany. And then you start to go into more Eastern Europe. That's like Russia. If we start to push down from Europe, you're going to hit this huge continent, not a country, called Africa. It's trucking ginormous and incredibly diverse. Africa is huge. There's a Sahara Desert. And then below that, you have the savannas and then jungle and huge. Like, if you get the time, pull up a size compare Africa size comparison map, and you'll see all the things that can fit into Africa. Like, dang, that's pretty big. Anywho, top right corner of Africa, you got Egypt. Egypt is like the gateway into the Middle East. The Middle East, that's like Iraq. Once you push Iran, like you're starting to get into like the different type of Asia. And by the way, the Middle East is Asia, so these people are technically Asians. You got like Iraq, Syria, Israel, Palestine. And then like <laughs> I'm sorry if this is not your cup of tea. From there, if you push northwest, you're going back into Europe, that's like Eastern Europe, so it's going to be like Turkey and then going into like uh Serbia, Croatia, that general area, Greece. But let's say we're in the Middle East, pick Iraq, deserty. You start to push east, you're getting into like Iran. And then once you get past that, things start to change. Like then you're in Pakistan, you're in Afghanistan, Pakistan, then India, which is a totally different thing from like the Middle East. It's also Asia. They're all Asians. The India, it's a huge peninsula that pushes into it's the Indian Ocean. If you go north from there, like northeast, you're going to start to hit like China, Korea, Japan. If you go southeast, east, you're going to hit like Malaysia, uh, the Philippines, island, a bunch of islands, also Asia. And then south from there, you're going to hit Australia. That's the world. I hope that I don't know if that helped you at all. That might have just annoyed you. Maybe like you're uh, not closing your eyes if you're driving or whatever, but you're like thinking about like, okay, we just traveled around the world. We just described it a little bit. There's way more to it. That's the board game. That's the map that we're dealing with, okay? What is it like around 1500? What's everyone going through? If you don't like history, 
fear not like i'm not about to entirely nerd out i feel like i'm pretty much giving an elementary explanation of like this is what it was like just breezing through it so bear with me we're gonna start with east asia that is china you got korea and japan korea and japan are independent um korea is going to be getting beat up in the future uh, on multiple fronts but china is a very complicated society that has a very deep history of multiple dynasties and emperors um and it's an empire and it's dealing with between 150 to 200 million people china is huge and china is we'll call it a singular society it's it's made up of a bunch of different subcultures but it's under one rule and china has a fleet that dominates the ocean um they are trading spices and tea silks cottons porcelains and luxury goods they are kind of they're just doing their own thing they have ups and downs as do all societies but if you're looking at like if you're familiar with the silk road and if you need to google an image go for it the silk road goes from china all the way pretty much to like turkey and then pushes into like the mediterranean china people want things from china china's doing very well with trade they're doing fine they're doing great they don't seem to be interested in europe like kind of i saw like they're kind of interested in like scientific developments but that's later in europe in regards to trade china is doing just fine they don't they don't really seem to be worried about like expanding they are exploring the oceans but that's eventually going to stop and then they just shut that down because it's too expensive but china's doing fine we would call them like a world power but even that concept at the time isn't really relevant scale you got to think scale changes in regards to like being a power the Roman Empire was a power, right? And that was essentially like just the Medi they had the Mediterranean and then like England. If you have the headquarters of the Roman Empire in Italy, in Rome, and then something is going on in England, in how long does it take information to get to headquarters? Or like how how can the people in the headquarters really control things going on all over their empire when information moves so slowly? Do you know what I mean by this? Like, the United States is large and it's very culturally diverse, but information is instantaneous now. So, and I'm not like the president, he doesn't make all the decisions and like things take time, but like he's gonna find, they're gonna find out about something going on in California immediately that changes things so like this scale of power and influence is a lot smaller in 1500 and in regards to who's doing well China again they have their ups and downs but like they're doing great India so think of that when you're in China in East Asia you're gonna go west and south that peninsula is ticking out. 
we call it India now. Um, at that time, it was like there was North and South India are very different. And there's a lot of trading going on in between amongst people within that peninsula and subcontinent. But you have different empires popping up that don't even control all of that peninsula. So that space consists of a bunch of different people. They would, I think they would identify themselves differently. But the Indian Ocean, which is that body of water and like that peninsula sticking out, is very similar to like think of i mentioned before the mediterranean where it's this cultural and economic hub of a lot of people are sending their supplies to the mediterranean to be traded same thing for the indian ocean and india it turns into um a what i'll call like the watering hole for economic trade and cultural interaction china doesn't need india but china like is working with india essentially like, they're benefiting from each other they're dependent was it zero sum game it's like india is where a lot of people go to a lot of different products come in a lot of products go out it's like a central hub it's the watering hole you start to see in india um, more specialized production so textile sugar refining leather tanning stone carving carpet weaving iron and steel and steel's like great for weapons what we start to notice leading up to the and prior to the 1500s is areas start to specialize in things like if you want steel and like good steel india in certain areas in india it's not like india as a whole because even northern and southern india are very different Pushing into the Islamic world, and Islam enters into the world in around 600. That's the Middle East. And I'm not saying all people in the Middle East are Muslims. The Ottoman Empire comes in in the mid 1400s in the Middle East. So picture the map. You got india you start to travel more west you got the middle east and that's like the connection to africa if you're gonna go south west and then europe if you're gonna go northwest ottoman empire takes up that little the middle east that space right there turns out that event is key because in europe they along with the world when i say the world i mean the eastern world um, they get wrecked from the bubonic plague. Population drops significantly. Um, and when the Ottoman Empire comes in, their trade, not literally, but in their minds, a lot of them, um, gets cut off with Asia. So their trade, so the Ottoman Empire pops up and that's like the central space because Europe has to go through the Mediterranean. That's like the Silk Road for them. Their access is the eastern part of the Mediterranean. The Ottomans now control that. They're Muslim. And they're like, yeah, sure, you can trade with us, but it's going to cost you a lot more now. And Europeans like, nah, they're already, like, think of location. They're already kind of butthurt about where they're at because the hub of things going down culturally and economically really is going on in kind of the Mediterranean, but a lot of it is east. 
and there europe is trying to get in on that and once the ottomans come in they create an obstacle that some europeans specifically portugal and spain are going to be like there has to be a better way <laughs> there simply must portugal starting in the earlier 1400s like they've already been exploring like what's going on with the western coast of africa once the ottomans come in here they're like all right like this this is our way to get into the game we need value if we can find a better route to get into the trade and the game where like the hub of where things are happening in india and asia that's going to benefit us think of the board game the ottomans and their location is clutch for them because the two goals are to continue to function to currently function and continue to function right so in their mind europe is seeking to trade with asia the ottomans are there and they're like okay well this essentially gives us a continuous income at least if we can increase and like tax europe what that then forces i'll put that in quotations the europeans to do is we're gonna find a better way we're gonna at least see if there is a better way they start to try to go around africa spain is going to send this guy christopher columbus he has this idea to well what if we just go around the world because in the, his mind it's a lot smaller than it is he's like we'll just pop in in asia and like we'll be good so we're gonna go west this is the disclaimer like that whole history right there is going to open things up for like industrialization there's also going to be just mass murder and death in the americas it's also going to create a whole conundrum in regards to the slave trade i'm not going to be getting into that this episode but spain goes west hit the americas they don't necessarily know it yet that's just gonna that opens up the board game and changes the significance of location if you will for europe that's in the future again this is 1492 going into the 1500s portugal is exploring africa the western coast of africa and they're trying to get around let's i'm going to do like a much more in-depth look at africa but africa at the time around the 1500s is on a generally equal playing field with europe like during the roman empire you have those countries that are along the Mediterranean. Like they were some of the richest areas in the Roman Empire. Now, obviously you have like the Mediterranean. Then you have this thing called the Sahara Desert, which it just acts as a wall because it's very difficult to cross, especially if you can't fly or just drive through it. Like And you're on camels. That's a pretty easy thing to get lost in. Haven't done it myself, but I've heard. Below that is what we call Sub-Sahara Africa. And again, trucking huge empires and societies pop up in Africa and they are trading ivory and gold and people. Like that is a part of Africa prior to 1492. Like it, this is not the first time. A lot of times it was the scale was much, much less. But a lot of times the slaves were being traded into the Middle East 
But you have all these resources being drawn out within Central and Southern Africa, going to the trade routes in the Sahara, and then get those like move into the Mediterranean. But there are stories of like Portugal as they're think like every single time they go, they do an exploration. They go a little bit further south and they like enter into the coastland of Africa. And I've, from what I've read, like they try to start to like take territory and they just get fought off. And in 1456, they have to negotiate for trade. So like Europe is not just taking over Africa. They're starting to explore a little bit more. But they certainly know that Africa's there. It's not like Africa's this unknown area. Africa, especially in the northern part, is like central in what's going on in the Mediterranean. And the eastern ports are trading with the Middle East, and the western ports are familiar with Europe. And Africa's doing its own thing. Post really Columbus and going starting in the 1500s going into the 1800s Europe starts to become a global player and when I say Europe I really mean Western Europe why does this happen I remember in college someone asked me a friend which is I don't know I guess because I majored in history he just like assumed I would know <laughs> uh, I didn't but he was like hey why is it that like Europe dominated the world I was like, well, I mean, if you think about it, like they're like they weren't for a long time, and then and like they were dominated, and empires were in like Asia and in Africa, and Americas was doing its own thing. But it does just seem that Europe, upon the discovery of Americas, I don't know if you want to call it like right place, right time. I don't know. Like, if we're in if we're in another dimension and the Americas gets discovered, like, could you argue that China and Eastern Asia goes in and benefits from it? Now, looking at the Americas, Eastern America seems to be more uh, fruitful, I suppose. Uh, if you look at like. Think of California, dry. You can do like wine and other things. I know I'm t completely oversimplifying. But then you got desert and then the Rockies and then the Midwest. And that's corn and wheat. I don't know. But Europe gains, gains access to the Americas at the expense of the people already there. And what ends up happening is the European population starts to grow. Why? From what I've read, from my understanding, and this does seem to make sense, with the discovery of the Americas, and I put discovery in quotations because they certainly were not the first society in the Eastern world to like figure out the Americas were there. They're able to introduce new crops like potatoes, potatoes, maize, tomatoes, and the people in Europe are able to be more better nourished. And when you're better nourished, you're able to resist disease such as like smallpox, dysentery, influenza, tuberculosis, and typhus. Those are the big things going on at the time. Not counting the bubonic plague, smallpox, apparently it took out like 10% of the European uh, infant population 
but if you could live through that, you were able to access more food. And this is like the map activity, which I, I would like to do dive into more in a different episode. Hold on to it. Hopefully, it was a good experience for you. But like you, for the most part, have access to food. Now, if you can afford it, that's a totally different story. But as the world starts to open up, the variety of what people can eat expands and then the likelihood that people are able to get food expands we are not just if like england is not just dependent on themselves growing crops they have access to other areas now and you're going to see the population of europe let's say in the 16th century is about 81 million people in the 19th century so that's the 1800s it's going to be 180 million people so the population is going to just skyrocket with the growing population, cities, more cities start to one, pop up, and then two, become more populated. Increased agriculture and access to agriculture leads to growing population. Growing population tends to lead to growth in economic activity. Now, Another big aspect in leading up to the Industrial Revolution is capitalism. One second. Capitalism. The scapegoat for problems, and it does create a lot of problems. I'm not saying that, but problems certainly were around before. Capitalism has a lot of flaws. It's not totally bad. It's a little gray. But capitalism, which is important to note, has like maybe literally capitalism but like capitalism was around before europe didn't invent capitalism let's just say that like profit helped people for thousands of years in china and the mediterranean the sub-saharan africa like getting a profit is not something new and like pro-business is not something new that like europeans invent but and this might be right place right time capitalism in europe in the 1500s, moving forward into like the 16, 1700s, is going to help Europe in the board game. So what happens? You have private parties making goods and services available on what we call the free market. And the free market is, I'm going to make something, I'm gonna to go to a corner and say, hey, does anybody want this? And they'll be like, yeah, I'll pay $5 for it. And I'm like, how about $6? And I'm like, uh, sure. And then someone else comes in with the same product and like, I'll sell this to you for four. And then like, that's the market. That's like a completely oversimplified. That concept's not new. That's hundreds of years before Europe, like in the 1500s. But for my research, it seems that Europe does it at a much larger scale. I got this example from traditions and encounters it's a ap world history textbook in my mind it does a good job of giving a well-rounded history of the world it's not just the there were the greeks then the romans and then europe and then here we are you know like it's not very eurocentric which is i say good they're talking about europe in this part that i'm reading to you right now 
They say the capitalist economic order developed as businessmen learn to take advantage of market conditions by building efficient networks of communication. What is that hoobla? European companies, and Europe isn't a whole, it's made up of a, of a bunch of different societies, and it's not super unified. They are much more aware of things going on around them at like a larger scale. And here's an example. Dutch merchants would be aware of the grain prices in let's say like the Baltic lands and they would figure out when those prices like were at their cheapest or like relatively cheap. So they would know like, okay, how much does grain cost in like the Baltics versus in other areas? Like, okay, it's cheap there, let's buy that. They would buy that wheat or grain and then hold on to it and then let's say like france is going through a rough famine they're like hey heard you need some grain and then they'd sell it for a much higher price so i think the scale of what's going on and like their connection to the world information is going to start to move a lot faster if you're familiar with the wall street journal um they give you news from a very business focused lens and essentially saying like, Hey, this is going on around the world. This is how it's going to influence these specific companies or like this industry. That is not a modern like invention. Europe starts doing that. These capitalist like pro profit companies and like banks start releasing information about things going on around the world and then they're like okay well let's make a profit off of this and this is what i mean by like the scale of opportunity has grown information can spread faster and we're going to see this desire for information to spread quicker is going to lead to exponentially quicker transfer of information we also at this time in europe see in Increase in the influence, we'll call it, of banks, especially, and insurance, and then like joint stock companies. Banks start to grant loans to merchants or entrepreneurs starting new business, and like they are much more influential in doing this. And they're like, this is pro profit. Think of Shark Tank. Someone comes in with an idea. It doesn't matter who you are, if you are seeking profit and you're like, hey, this idea is going to make money banks will do it this is like banks are giving loans to private just individuals it's not like the crown where the crown's going to make money and i'm not saying like this is new but this becomes far more relevant within european society insurance companies are going to um cover people and like their banks and insurance are a effective way to take chance and try new things the, the end goal is to make a profit but that's going to push forward someone goes they have an idea they go to a bank and they get a loan that idea can at least possibly become a reality much more likely than if banks are less likely to give out loans and they're giving them out to individuals for the most part, who are saying like, I have an idea or this could get me a profit. There is an increase, and I don't know if it's like the beginning of 
joint stock companies, and that's essentially, it's made up of a group of shareholders and each shareholder, individual, individual, private, invests money into the company. And this is key. It's, it's private. It's not the crown. So for instance, like Virginia company in the early 1600s is a bunch of individual wealthy private citizens who put money together. They're chartered by the crown, but they as individual citizens are the ones that are doing it, which is different than the crown funding it. Because the crown can't, and when I say the crown, I mean government. Government can't fund everything. England is competing, the board game, England's competing against all these other European countries, France, Spain, in the Americas. If they're just depending on the government doing this and like funding this stuff, they're moving much slower. But when you have joint stock companies or private individuals who are saying like, I will, I'll, I'll do this. I'll, I will fund this expedition. They're going to do that. They're also going to go into Asia with the English East Indy Company. Now, the effects of this on those people are not effective or not positive, we'll say. It's effective in regards to profit, but like the people that are there, wherever they're going, are going to experience some problems. Not this episode, but another episode, we're going to look in like, what does that look like when the little guy gets picked on by these bigger companies that are there for profit? You also start to see a shift in production in Europe. So the question is like, why did Europe thrive from the 1500s to the 1800s going into the Industrial Revolution? Because the Industrial Revolution is going to happen in Europe. Like, this is the context. Like, well, what's going on? The discovery of the Americas with an increased population and a um, more influ- a larger influence of capitalism, we'll say. Capitalism is essentially like pro-profit on the free market. In Europe at the time, you had what are called guilds, and they're controlled production, fixed prices and wages by a group. It's almost like it's the union, if you will. So like if you, the guild of blacksmiths or let's say printers, if you get, if you need something printed, the only way you can get it is through the guilds and it's like a guild sponsored company. And in order for anyone to even become like a printer or a blacksmith, they have to get an apprenticeship through the guild. So if I want to get in the business of making like textile and like making shirts, the guild is the way I I pretty much have to go through and they control everything. So that's when like unions go, it's almost like a monopoly. It's just in a different way. They control how things are produced, where they're produced, how much it costs to produce, how much they're going to sell for everything. And we see a shift in Europe. It's called the putting out system. And I actually found this interesting. What companies would do is rather than like, let's say they need to um, like the textile industry rather than like, oh, well, I have to go through this guild to produce the raw wool for me. They would just go around to um, villages 
into rural households and just give those people raw wool and those people would in their house take the raw wool and produce it into like fabric or whatever the wool was being used for it's called proto from what i've read it's called proto industrialization and like those people the rural people are like yeah i'd love to do this i'll get paid (laughs) work from home or (laughs) it's like the og working from home but that's a way to get around the guild i'm gonna do it for cheap like if i gotta pay the guild i don't know like 15 an hour the person from home's like i'll do that for eight an hour like done going around the guild doing it for cheap and if i'm paying them eight an hour i can sell the product for less and if like we're competing on the market and it like the government's pro market and capitalism and they're not influenced too much by the guilds my fabric enters into the market as opposed to guild fabric which is more expensive because they're doing their whole thing call it corrupt or whatever a monopoly or whatever but i'm in i'm in introducing this new fabric that's cheaper and people are going to come to me so you see capitalism within society like that and then with or outside of society outside of europe the whole dutch getting the grain from the baltics and sending and selling it to france profit profit rules just another clarifier there's a whole bunch of there's so much more stuff going on in europe that's like a very specific perspective or lens but kind of have to do that like if we were to tell the story of europe and the world like there would be so like cultural things going on you got the reformation you got this uh, we're going to get into like the scientific revolution and the enlightenment. Like we don't have time for that. The only reason I would mention that stuff is if they influenced industrialization, which they kind of do. But government views capitalism as a good thing in the sense of the board game. It's a way to play the game. You start to see, for instance, English and Dutch governments uh, chartering joint stock companies to explore, conquer, and colonize areas in the world, again, at the expense of all the people living there, in order to create more economic opportunity. It's the board game. Europe was tired of being on the outskirts of the hub of what's going on. The Ottoman Empire tells them, like, all right, well, like, you can come through us, but you're going to have to pay. And they're like, I'd like to find a different way. America's, they, like, it changes everything. And this quote from Traditions and Encounters, I think, sums it up well. It enabled European merchants to gain access to the natural resources and commodities that they distributed so effectively through their transportation networks. So the hub, the 
Watering Hole, whatever you want to say, Watering Hole. It's where like everyone goes to to get their goods, to get the source of life. That was initially like Eastern Asia and the Indian Ocean basin. Like that was the hub, and like the Mediterranean was almost like the B team, like the second tier hub as a result of what was going on in Eastern Asia. Europe changes that. Now, what they inter and I don't, I don't honestly do not know if like they're the not the first ones to do this. Certainly, but part of the whole European approach is we're gonna colonize. We're going to go in and not just dominate trade, but like we're gonna dominate. That's what fierce competition makes you do. I don't know. Is that a, is that a year? I'm I'm into these like a question. I then have is like, is that a European mindset of like we're playing the board game where other countries like, yeah, man, we can trade. Like, let's find a way that both of us will make a profit off this. Is the European is is like a specifically European mindset of like, I'm gonna dominate you. I'm going to find the best price, and I'm going to sell to you as expensively as I possibly can expensively I don't even know if that's a word if you look at a map of the world in around 1700 like you'll see a pretty good idea of what's going on the Americas at the expense of all the people that were there before and like by the way, the Americas were not all just sunshine and rainbows and everyone living kumbaya. Like to clarify that one. That doesn't justify what the Europeans did, but it was certainly not like a utopia that got destroyed by the Europeans. But the Europeans are going to open up the map and their location is now key especially as we get into a more industrial world. And we're going to see in Europe in the 17s to 18, 17 to 1800s, industrialization, like, well, it's called the Industrial Revolution. It pops. So the board game, where, where we're at, essentially, Asia is the hub of the world. Africa... Also in the game, Europe, pretty butthurt about their location. Europe makes a move to try to improve their positioning. And by doing that, pretty much accidentally opens something up that then makes their location pretty trucking good. That plus a pro-capitalist movement if you will pro business pro profit pushes Europe into a dominant mindset if you will where like the scale becomes much larger and they start to change the game
<laughs> I feel like I said, like, this isn't going to be too much history. I mean, like, it could have been much, much worse. Hopefully that interests you. Next week, we're going to look at the Industrial Revolution and how certain inventions and, like, what they were changed really like the human experience and like the world forever time and space is going to shift in the human experience and the world becomes a lot smaller not literally figuratively of course hold on to your maps and i'll see you next week later